This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. Welcome to The Tonic, your prescription for a healthier and happier life. Here's your host and publisher of Tonic Magazine, Jamie Busson. Hi, I'm Jamie Busson. I'm a former commercial litigator who used to weigh 242 pounds. When I was 38 years old, I lost over 50 pounds through a regimen of exercise and better nutrition. It took me a year to reach my goal, but I thought if a type A personality like me could do it, really anybody can. I'm still asking questions and learning about what it means to live a healthy lifestyle. Please join me on this continuing journey. Today, we'll discuss the treatment of pain with geriatric pharmacist Andy Donald. We'll learn about the neurobiology of fear with neuroscientist Dr. Mihaela Iordanova. We'll find out how our diet changes as we age with dietitian Shauna Lindzen. And lastly, we'll discover what it's like to live with pulmonary arterial hypertension with Joanne Mainwood. Before we get to that, here's your tonic quick shot. Ludwig Maximilian's Universität München researchers have identified a signaling pathway by which aspirin can inhibit colorectal cancer. Colorectal cancer is the third most common form of cancer worldwide, with around 1.9 million newly diagnosed cases and 900,000 deaths every year. Therefore, preventative substances represent an urgent clinical need. Aspirin has proven to be one of the most promising candidates for the prevention of colorectal cancer. Studies have shown that when patients with cardiovascular diseases took low doses of aspirin over several years, it reduced their risk of colorectal cancer. Furthermore, aspirin can inhibit the progression of colorectal cancer. Now researchers have investigated which molecular mechanisms mediate these effects. As humans, we live in our thoughts. From pondering what to make for dinner to daydreaming about our last beach vacation, Now researchers at Howard Hughes Medical Institute's Genelia Research Campus have found that animals also possess an imagination. The team developed a novel system combining virtual reality and a brain-machine interface to probe the rat's inner thoughts. They found that, like humans, animals can think about places and objects that aren't right in front of them, using their thoughts to imagine walking to a location or moving a remote object to a specific spot. Like humans, when rodents experience places and events, specific neural activity patterns are activated in the hippocampus, an area of the brain responsible for spatial memory. The new study finds rats can voluntarily generate these same activity patterns and do so to recall remote locations distant from their current position. This ability to imagine locations away from one's current position is fundamental to remembering past events and imagining possible future scenarios. Therefore, The new work shows that animals, like humans, possess a form of imagination, according to the study's authors. Speech prosthetic, developed by a collaborative team of Duke neuroscientists, neurosurgeons, and engineers, can translate a person's brain signals into what they're trying to say. Appearing recently in the Journal of Nature Communications, the new technology might one day help people unable to talk due to neurological disorders regain the ability to communicate through a brain-computer interface. I'll be joined by Andy Donald in a moment, but first, a little bit of business. Tired of lineups at your pharmacist? Why not try PharmaZ at the Zoomer store? Powered by the Health Depot, an Ontario-accredited pharmacy, PharmaZ offers a concierge approach to filling, refilling, and 
managing your prescriptions with free delivery anywhere in Ontario. To get started, visit zoomerstore.com and click on PharmaZ. And then click on the Circle of Care Pharmacy Program for your free initial consultation with a clinical pharmacist. Don't wait, go today. Andy Donald is a certified geriatric pharmacist and president of the Health Depot Pharmacy. His passion to help patients and deliver personalized services led him to launch the Health Depot, Canada's only online clinical pharmacy. He's active in his profession, uh, serving on several committees, including the Alzheimer's Society of Ontario's Ontario Dementia Care Alliance, and he is the Prescribe It Pharmacy Ambassador for the Canada Health Infoway. The Health Depot Pharmacy is an online clinical pharmacy providing free, no-obligation consultations. They'll meet with you to discuss your medications and answer your questions and deliver your prescriptions free anywhere in Ontario. For more information, you visit the healthdepot.ca. Welcome back to the show, sir. How are you doing? Pretty good. Yourself? I'm doing okay. A little bit of aches and pains here and there, but that, that doesn't make me unique, does it? No, it's when the weather starts going this way, it uh, actually becomes quite common <laughs> when things start getting a little bit colder. And I thought it was because I was in my, my, my mid-50s. Who knew? <laughs> you don't think of pain being seasonal, but I, I suppose for people with arthritis and other conditions, sort of when it gets damp and cold, there, there would for sure be an escalation in that. Absolutely. It gets a little bit worse, for sure. So there are different types of pain, right? There are. There's There's different classifications. Obviously, there's the... Short-term pain and long-term pain, acute or chronic. Acute being, you know, it's after damage has happened, like a cut, broken bone, twisted ankle, that goes away once your injury is healed. And then there's the chronic pain, which lasts longer than three months, well after the injury is healed. Examples of that are arthritis, nerve pain, lower back pain. But then there's also different types. That's like how long it lasts, right? right. And whether yeah. or not it's going to be something that sticks around for a long period of time. But there's also different types of pains, and this is, and it, it depends on what type of pain it is for how we treat it. One called a nociceptive pain, which is the muscles, the most of pain people get is like broke, broken bones, twisted ankles, sharp, achy, throbbing sensation, and then also nerve pain or neuropathic pain which is uh, usually is like shooting pain, stabbing or tingling. And that's usually what happens when our nerves have been damaged, like micro tears that you can't sometimes even see that cause them to misfire and uh, constantly send signals. And that's common in things like shingles, uh, post-shingles pain, diabetic neuropathy and fibromyalgia. I mean, empirically, I can tell you that I get more aches and pains and sort of displaced pain as I get older. But I presume I'm not unique, right? Does pain get older as we get worse? Sorry, yes, does pain does. Get, sorry, does pain get worse as we get older? As we age, yes, it definitely does. Like there's the old, just old war wounds. We we like to call them like old injuries you had back in the day. Yeah, do come back to haunt us a little bit over time for a couple different reasons. And um, obviously, like the pain, the damage is there. And it just comes out a little bit. But there's two main things that uh, make pain worse as we age. The first one being that we have an increased pain threshold. So that means that we're not sensitive to low levels of pain. And it's kind of confusing. It sounds like it's a better thing. (laughs) But what ends up actually happening is pain has a purpose. Pain stops us from using a certain joint or a certain part of our body that's actually damaged and could even get more damaged that can cause even more pain. So it's supposed to stop us to allow it to heal. Because of this, if we have increased pain thresholds, we don't even notice pain until it's really late. And and once damage is actually a lot more severe. Oh, that's interesting. And the second reason is that we also have less pain inhibition. 
which is kind of confusing. So our threshold's higher to feel pain, but then once we feel the pain, we can't block it as much. So we have less natural endorphins and molecules that inhibit pain. We actually make our own endogenous opioids, believe it or not, like opioids that can block pain sensation, but we make less of that as we get older. So once we do get above that threshold and we feel pain, which damages a lot worse, now we have a tougher time as we age to block out that pain. Is there any way as we age to produce more of those naturally occurring opioids in our system? Like, is there anything we could do to, to, to boost it or is it just a fait accompli once, once we get older? Um, it's one of those things that generally as we age, our body slows down in all aspects. So we make less hormones, less neurotransmitters. Our muscles generally slowly over time get a little more weaker. I mean, the best thing is, uh, as everything, you know, in general is eat healthy, exercise. Exercise, we'll get into that in a moment, very, very effective because the more we do, the more we keep our muscles. And believe it or not, like a lot more of those hormones we'll be able to keep as long as we can uh, to limit the effect of that aging on the pain. So absolutely, there's things that can help a little bit, but also um, for sure, you know, if we're more active, we get our sleep, our exercise, eat properly as much as we can, we can make sure that those natural opioids that our body make don't drop off, drop off as quickly. Okay, so you, you mentioned just a moment ago that, you know, if we're not aware of the pain, then we actually continue using the parts of our body. You know, there's more wear and tear until it gets to the point where it's, it's, it's more serious. But what else happens if we ignore pain or leave it untreated? Yeah, well, just to your point, like this is a good example about, you know, why it's important that pain stops us from doing things. Um, Believe it or not, leprosy that happened back in the day when people were disfigured, people sometimes may not be aware, that's actually a condition that we're unable to sense pain. So with that feedback, that's why people got disfigured back in biblical times, right? You notice if you're turning a key and it's not turning, it hurts your hands, you stop turning. Right. Whereas if you had leprosy, you might still keep on turning to the point that the, the key carves up and cuts your fingers, right? Ugh. So that, that kind of shows you need that feedback loop. It's a very important feedback loop. But um, what happens if you un- don't treat pain? It's kind of like um, what happens with our muscles, right? The more you use something, the stronger that becomes. So repetitive pain sensitizes our neurons in, in our body and in our spinal cord, which then means a smaller stimulus of pain can cause a bigger amount of pain. So it's like a weightlifter. The more you weight lift, the stronger your muscles get and allows you to lift more, more weight, right? Mm-hmm. So if we're actually having a lot of pain firing, it can make our pain receptor stronger and the signals of the pain receptor stronger, so then we get a more exaggerated pain signal uh, to our brain and our body. Okay. Now, when I get my aches and pains, I find it really, really difficult to sleep. And I presume I'm not alone there, and that that affects my mood, et cetera, et cetera. What's the correlation between pain, depression, and sleep? Absolutely. It's actually, I think the stat is like somewhere like 50 to 80% of patients that have chronic pain have a significant sleep disturbance. Obviously, it's tough to fall asleep if you're in pain. And then sleep disturbances are related to, if you can't sleep and you're in pain, to uh, it's a cardinal symptoms that can cause depression. 
So, and it's this endless cycle that the more, you know, and you're not getting your sleep, so you're not able to heal, and you're not, your body's not able to make those endogenous opioids and all these other signals that can help block out pain, right? And it's this endless cycle that pain, sleep, and your mood, depression, are very tied together. So that's why it's very important to make sure, particularly we're not in pain when it's bedtime and we're trying to lie down and go to sleep. Okay, so I feel like we've set the table. So we've explained what pain is and what happens to our bodies when we're in pain and how that impacts our other systems and what's the downside of ignoring that pain. So let's talk about the treatment of pain, okay? Absolutely. So let, let's start with over-the-counter. Is there is there anything out there that can really help us with pain that, that we can get over-the-counter? Yeah, absolutely. Maybe what I'll do is I'll start maybe with the lifestyle, and then I'll get to over-the-counter sure. for sure. Okay. So one of the most important thing, I kind of alluded to it earlier, when uh, that exercise is yep. so key for us. Yep. So a lot of people with chronic conditions, particularly the arthritis, if you have that in your hip, your knee, the biggest cycle we need to be careful of is that, especially on the joints, that's often where people get chronic pain. It's often in your knees and your back, your lower back. Yep. And what we need to do is be careful. There's, again, just like that sleep depression pain cycle that spirals out of control, the same thing can happen for us around our joints and chronic pain is that if you're too, if you're painful for you to exercise, right, and you don't, you don't go for walks, you don't go for bike rides or, or swims and things like that to keep your muscles strong, then your muscles weaken around those joints, which puts even more weight on your joint, which causes even more pain. And then less physical activity, it's an endless cycle. So it's very important to try to stay active as much as you can. And even if it's a joint's really painful, going swimming in the pool where you're, you're very low impact on that joint can be very, very helpful. And that's why it's important to diet and exercise is so key. And that's where physiotherapists can help out, occupational therapists, right? Acupuncture and things like that can help. Massage. I mean, sometimes with chronic pain, your, some, your joints have already been healed, right? So the pain still lingers, but it's not actually there and with a meaningful purpose to warn you not to use that joint anymore. That it's, all, it's you know, heat therapy and cold therapy and TENS therapy all kind of work similarly. And what they do is like, let's say you hurt your outside edge of your elbow, right? And it's got long-term pain well after it's healed, right? You got a little nerve pain or whatever. If you do heat or cold, that actually activates in the whole area pain receptor uh, nerves. So then it sends this dull heat or dull cold sensation in your body, which overloads your pain sensation. So what it does is then it it makes your body drown out the throbbing pain, and you just notice the slow burn or the slow cooling sensation. So that's where deep cold and, you know, those ice gels and things like that or the heat that, you know, often are in, like, capsaicin and things like that, uh, Tiger Bomb, right, Mm -hmm. that are in a lot of anesthetics. They mimic that kind of heat and cooled sensation that can help our body ignore some of those chronic pain. And, and same thing with TENS therapy. It's overstimulation of electrical signals in the area to make us drown out the pain. It's important to know that's kind of how our topical anesthetics work, right, in a lot of those creams and Voltaren and yeah. um, capsaicin cream. But it's important to know that's not a cure, <laughs> so you've got to be careful using that. It numbs your body to pain. You've got to make sure you're not really doing that for acute pain because then you're, you might use the joint and it can cause even more damage. It's meant more for chronic pain that can help us with that throbbing sensation when we don't, the pain is kind of lingered and it's not really doing its purpose. It can help us ignore it. So it can be very useful for that. 
obviously over the counter too. There's yeah. Tylenol and Advil. There's yeah. reasons why you take any of those. Great to discuss with your pharmacist and your doctor, especially your clinical pharmacist, on what might be the best thing for you. Yeah, um, Tylenol is good for you know more chronic pain and a lot more than the anti-inflammatories. Anti-inflammatories have a good purpose for short-term inflammatory pain when you twist an ankle, but they can cause a lot more problems for us long long term on your stomach, ulcers, your kidneys, and even, believe it or not, over time, even with your heart and heart disease, if you take them for too long at too high a dose, if you, you got to weigh out the pros and cons with everything. Any prescription over-the-counter drug, over-the-counters are acting your body just like prescriptions do. But then when you get to your prescription options, obviously uh, there are some ones more tailor-made for different types of pain in the prescriptions and harder prescriptions that can deal with the more severe pain. So obviously if you have nerve pain, you know, you want to be taking like neuropathic pain, a nerve pain medication that helps with neuralgia that's specific for it. You don't want to necessarily take, try to knock it out with an, maybe necessarily an opioid right off the bat that, you know, it's kind of like instead of trying um, to kill a fly, don't try to drop a car on it and try to hit it with a fly swatter. It's better to not overkill it there are a lot of nerve pain drugs that can help um, if you have that shooting pain sensation. And those ones, um, just to name a couple, they're often drugs that, are, that have been developed for other conditions that they just found that serendipitously help to block the nerves firing out of control. Hmm. And one of them, uh, the big three that people, if you do have nerve pain, that can really help out, talk to your doctor and your pharmacist to see if it's the right for you, would be Cymbalta, which is duloxetine, that was actually a mood medication, helps with depression, um, and serotonin, norepinephrine, like, you know, uh, which naturally does decline with age anyway. So it's one of the, the top ones. But then there's a couple anticonvulsants, gabapentin or pregabalin, which is Lyrica, that also really helped for nerve pain as well. They're like, they're like the top three, but there's like a list of 40 to 50. And find out the one that works for you. You have to kind of sometimes tri- trial and error, but it also depends on what other meds you're on. So very important, yeah, you talk to your doctor, but also your pharmacist to find out the right mix for you. Because some of them will have different side effects. Gabapentin, more drowsy, you can gain more weight with that one. Where you know, So you've you got to kind of weigh out the pros and cons for the meds. Fantastic. Thank you so much for coming on the show today. Yeah, thank you so much. It's been a pleasure. That was Andy Donald. We have to take a short break, but when we return, we'll discuss the neurology of fear on The Tonic. OMTO is back. Brought to you by ColdFX, CanPrev, and AOR. OMTO is a yogic celebration of the winter solstice, a full day of specially curated and themed yoga classes led by the most dynamic and popular instructors from the top studios in Toronto. Hundreds of yogis from across the GTA will come to partake in this one-of-a-kind yoga experience and practice in unique themed classes, nourishing your body and mind at a time of year when we need it the most. Guests can reserve their space online in advance. There'll be music, contests, free giveaways, and special offers for our guests. And a portion of the proceeds from ticket sales will go to charity. OMTO, December 17th. Save the date. Attention men over 50. Do you search for restrooms everywhere you go? Wake up several times at night just to go pee again? Are symptoms of a benign and large prostate taking over? Prostate Perform helps reduce the urgency and frequency of pesky pit stops in as little as 7 to 10 days. Available exclusively through natural health food stores. To ensure these products are right for you, always follow label directions. 
Welcome back to The Tonic, your prescription for a healthier and happier life. Here's your host and publisher of Tonic Magazine, Jamie Busson. Dr. Mihalia Yordanova is an associate professor at Concordia University, a Canada Research Chair Tier 2 in Behavioral Neuroscience, a 2020 Can Young Investigator, and a 2016 NARSAD Young Investigator. Her research focuses on delineating the neurobiological mechanisms of learning and memory and fear and reward. Dr. Yordanova's research is funded in part by the Canadian Institute of Health Research. Welcome to the show, doctor. How are you? Thank you. I'm very excited to be here. I'm doing very well, thanks. Good. So we're going to talk about the neurobiology of fear, and we're going to get at sort of like the distinctions between fear and anxiety and, and how fear manifests and, and how physiologically our bodies deal with the, with the concept of fear. So what part of the brain processes fear and how does it work? Yeah, it's a good question. And if we have to talk about a specific part of the brain, then we absolutely have to mention the amygdala. Mm-hmm. Um, it is a, a small brain structure, almond-shaped, um, and it's really important for emotion regulation. And in a lot of human and animal studies, it really has been exclusively linked to fear in particular, although it is also involved in reward as well. So just to give you a, a little um taste of how we know this, uh, if we take animal studies and we present um, fear eliciting stimuli to those animals, then what we see is that neurons in this brain area will actually respond. They'll change their firing rates. Um, We also see a very similar thing in humans when we're looking at uh, the blood oxygen level, the bold response uh, in um, fMRI studies. Again, we see activation of the amygdala uh, when humans are presented with fear-eliciting stimuli. For example, um, you know, faces uh, that can lead to, uh, say, that show fear themselves. And there's some other ways that uh, we know this too, not just from uh, recording or imaging, but also patients. Uh, who show disorders in fear processing. For example, PTSD patients uh, will show uh, an elevation or um, um, a stronger response when it comes to uh, the amygdala. And um, uh, if you have an impaired amygdala, on the other hand, you have an impaired fear response. For example, an impaired potentiated startle response. And these um, data that we see in humans, we also see in animals. So it really is very well preserved across the animal kingdom. It, what is very well preserved is the amygdala's response to uh, this fear eliciting uh, stimuli. Uh, but it's really important for me to also say that if we only think about one brain areas processing fear, we probably be really oversimplifying how the brain works. So the amygdala gets a lot of information from uh, sensory areas and somatosensory areas, the limbic areas, the cortex, and all that information is integrated within the amygdala. And then it gets sent out so that uh, different fear responses can be orchestrated. So we're really talking about circuits, not just one particular brain area. And some other areas that are involved um, are the prefrontal cortex, that sends input to the amygdala as well as uh, areas um, that the amygdala sends projections to, like the dorsolateral periaqueductal gray. Okay, so there are classical responses to fear that we, we have, and, and my understanding is in, that they are flight, fight, freeze, and fawn. Do you want to discuss those for a bit and, and what they yeah, are? Yeah, 
Absolutely, yes. So you have definitely nailed those classic responses, in particular uh, the first three that you mentioned. Um, so fight, um, fight and freeze. Again, these are responses that we see across the animal kingdom. We see, it in, we see them in animals, uh, we see them in humans. And what they really describe is something that we refer to as a predatory imminence continuum. So what that means is if we are faced with a threat, how imminent is that threat? Is the threat in the vicinity where you are? If it is, and you believe that you um, um, say the predator has not detected you, or it's not imminent, this threat, then you might freeze. So something to think about is uh, Sigourney Weaver in Alien. So we all know that scene where the alien is right next to her and she is using every ounce, every effort that she can not to move any part of her body. So that is a freezing response. It is aimed at avoiding detection. If um, the threat does not know that you're in the vicinity, chances are they will not attack you. Um, sometimes that's not possible. Sometimes you have been seen. So in order to avoid an actual encounter, an interaction with a threatening stimulus, uh, then you're going to try and flee. So you're going to try and run away. Um, and if that doesn't work, then you really are faced with a fight. So here we're looking at a circus strike kind of defense behavior where you're just going to interact with your threat and you hope that you will make it through um, a fight. Now, we see these in animals, we see these in humans, but when it comes to fawn, that really is um, a fear response that is much more specific to humans uh, because of the complexity in human interactions. So fawning really relates more to people-pleasing yeah. or, or trying to change your behavior in a, in a way so that you can make friends with the threat so they can evaluate, evaluate, uh, evaluate you in a different way and potentially be that much less threatening or less likely to cause harm. And, and this is really not something that we study in the laboratory. It's very difficult. It's more of a social behavior. Um, so it's not as well uh, defined uh, in, in animal studies. Can we talk about the physiological differences between fear and anxiety? Right, yes. Yeah. So fear and anxiety... Um, can seem very similar in the sense that they're both very unpleasant. Um, but at the same time, people also can think of them as different. Uh, so we generally, so, so the field has really been moving in the direction of trying to dissociate those two. Mm -hmm. um, and the way that we think about them, and this can kind of help us think about what those physiological responses can be, is what stimuli evoke these different states. So on the one hand, anxiety is less likely to occur when we are faced with very diffuse stimuli or very uncertain or unpredictable threat, um, whereas fear is more about something known. Right. Uh, and the way that we would measure these things is to look at what kind of behaviours they evoke. So on the one hand, we use different sorts of tests, um, exploration tests in animals to see do we have an anxiety phenotype? Will an animal venture out into the center of an arena? And if it doesn't, then that animal uh, is anxious. But that is very different to fear. Fear, we are more likely to look at these fear responses that we just talked about. 
So, for example, the freezing response is a very common one that we measure when it comes to a fear response. But some other things that are really can be quite common between the two, so when we think about anxiety and fear, are the very standard physiological responses that we see. So, um, you know, cold sweats, uh, changes in heart rate, be it an increase in heart rate or a decrease in heart rate. Well, we also can see a loss of appetite, uh, you know, butterflies in the stomach. And the, as the blood moves towards our extremities and we're activating the uh, sympathetic nervous system, we see a lot of cortisol and adrenaline passing through the body. So in very standard uh, anxiety situations, such as public speaking, for example, everyone uh, is likely to have experienced these kinds of responses. And and that is really quite diffuse when you think about it. There is nothing in particular that is very fear-eliciting when it comes to a generalized situation, such as, for example, public speaking. Right. And very often, once we engage in it, we realize that maybe it wasn't as bad as we thought that it would be. So the way that we overcome fear, is: do we overcome anxiety in the same way? Or should we be looking at different processes? Yeah, that's a really great question. So I guess the first thing I should mention is if anyone is really struggling with anxiety and fear and they're thinking about how they can uh, deal with it, the best thing to do uh, is speak to a mental health professional. So I'm not a clinical psychologist, so I just wanted to kind of put that out there. And if you do feel overwhelmed by these sorts of emotions, then definitely seek um, uh, medical help from a therapist or a doctor. But... I think that you know they can be quite different in the way that potentially we can overcome them because one is unknown, whereas the other one is from a very known source of a, a danger or threat. Anxiety can be that much more difficult to deal with. So you come into a situation, you don't know why you might feel anxious. Very often, it can be very difficult to identify what the stressor is. But it's very important to identify the stressor. If you're not able to do that, then how can you potentially deal with it? So I think anxiety provides a challenge there is very different to the challenges that we have with fear. So in fear, if we are afraid of a particular thing, such as, for example, spiders, people are often afraid of this. When I was 14, I moved from Europe to Australia, and there are many natural things in Australia that can kill you. Yeah. So immediately you start to be afraid. And the first thing that one is afraid of is actually the spiders, right? But the chances of encountering something like this are really quite low, a dangerous spider. But there are plenty of other ones that you will see that are very scary. And I'm thinking here of the huntsman, if if you know what that is, it's the size of your hand and it does look very menacing. But once you know that you're afraid of spiders, you can really deal with them very effectively. There are a number of different things that one can do, such as exposure therapy, if it really is pathological. But with anxiety, it really just doesn't give us that advantage. Um, So... We may want to deal with anxiety in a number of different ways. And one of them is recognizing that feeling, knowing what it feels like when we're anxious, and then taking a moment to um, evaluate that anxiety. So I can share what has worked with me when it comes to these sorts of more generalized responses. And that is to take a moment and potentially just engage in some mindful meditation to recognize that Um, even though we are perceiving some sort of threat, this generalized threat, that is not the same as being in danger. And very often we tend to overestimate how aversive something might be. So if we can keep 
that in check, then that can be really helpful in reevaluating some of the things that we are anxious about. You know, it gives us an opportunity to desensitize if we can be exposed to them. And mindfulness meditation can really give us that platform uh, to, to rethink those things. That's fantastic advice. Thank you so much for coming on the show today. Well, thank you very much for having me. I've really had a great time. That was Dr. Mahela Yordanova. We have to take a short break, but when we return, we'll discuss our changing diet as we age on The Tonic. I'd like to give a shout out to our new sponsor, Omega Alpha. This company is 100% Canadian owned. Their team consists of allopathic and naturopathic doctors, nutritionists, researchers, and other scientific professionals, all led by their CEO, Dr. Gordon Chang. Formulations are created on their 40,000 square foot facility located in Toronto. Omega Alpha uses only the highest quality ingredients to manufacture the most efficacious yet price-friendly nutraceuticals. For more information about Omega Alpha, visit OmegaAlphaInc.com. Attention men over 50. Do you search for restrooms everywhere you go? Wake up several times at night just to go pee again? Are symptoms of a benign and large prostate taking over? Prostate Perform helps reduce the urgency and frequency of pesky pit stops in as little as 7 to 10 days. Available exclusively through natural health food stores. To ensure these products are right for you, always follow label directions. Welcome back to The Tonic. Your prescription for a healthier and happier life. Here's your host and publisher of Tonic Magazine, Jamie Busson. Shauna Linson is a dietitian and nutritionist. She's a program developer and nutrition leader at Wellspring Cancer Support Network and enjoys seeing clients virtually and doing corporate wellness lectures. She runs practical cooking demonstrations that combine scientific knowledge with culinary education. Her demonstrations are unique, informative, and delicious, and lots of fun. And you can find a list of her nutrition classes and recipes at shaunalinzen.com. Welcome back to the show, my friend. How are you doing? I'm doing great, Jamie. How are you? I'm doing good. So I love to eat. I think that's been well established on this show. I don't need to go into tremendous detail about that. And I can tell you that it was both the taste and sometimes like the volume, to my detriment, But I find as I'm getting older, certain foods aren't hitting me the same way. In other words, I'm struggling to eat certain foods and certainly I can't eat as much as I used to. Is is that like a common thing that you hear or or is that a a strange outlier thing? No, it's very typical because as we age, our bodies change and our needs change. Our physical needs change, our emotional needs change. It's We change. So it does make total sense. All right. So if that's true, if, if our bodies are changing, why should we make adjustments to our diets and what, uh, as we get older? Yeah, it's actually really important to kind of um, bring yourself back to the basics. Like how much um, protein do you need? How much carbohydrate do you need? fat do you need? When we change, our everything changes. Our, mus- our muscular skeletal system changes. Our digestion changes. Our hormones change. And we, unfortunately, um, have an increased risk of 
different um, diseases, like let's say osteoporosis, cardiovascular disease, diabetes. So depending on our lifestyle, we should um, kind of adjust with our body changing. So, so from my perspective, the fact that I just can't eat as much has led me to sort of focus on protein because it's, mm-hmm. it's super important for me to get my protein because I exercise a lot and I want to make sure that my muscle mass remains at a good level. And if I'm not able to sort of uh, eat as much and I know that as we age, our bodies do not take in the vitamins and, and nutrients in the same way that we did that we're, we're younger, I'm sort of prioritizing the healthier foods. Which is brilliant, yes. So I like that. And the reason why you should um, maximize your protein at each meal is because as we age, our lean body mass goes down. And as you said, you want to conserve it, right? Right. So you to eat your protein, in practical terms, what I normally say is you want around 20 to 30 grams of protein at each meal. So how do we translate that into food? What I would say is in the morning, I know you like your oatmeal. Yep. Um, you can put some nut butter in it, like yep. some peanut butter or already some cashew there. butter. Yep. You're already doing that. Yep. You could put some hemp seeds, which are high in protein. You can have one or two eggs, which is actually an interesting thing. When we, when we talk about increasing protein, most people think eggs. But unfortunately, eggs are a great source of protein, but they're not high in protein. They're six or seven grams of protein per egg. When we look at something like Greek yogurt, we're looking at like 15 to 18 grams of protein in just three quarters to a a cup of Greek yogurt. So eggs are an excellent source of protein, but they're not going to make you hit the 20 or 30 grams quickly. Hmm. So it's good to supplement with a hard-boiled egg, let's say. Then you're getting six grams or seven grams, depending on the size of the egg. So I've been putting egg whites, I've been mixing in the egg whites as I make my batches of oatmeal together with either like almond butter or cashew butter is the new one that I've been doing. Yeah, and those are called proats. There's actually a name for them, protein oats. So as you cook the oatmeal, you whisk in the egg whites, which is brilliant. And then if you put your cashew butter, even smarter, and then some hemp seeds, and then you can even throw some berries in there for your phytochemicals, your antioxidants, um, to boost up the nutrition even more. Okay, so I focused on protein, but I presume there are other vitamins and minerals that we should be perhaps turning our mind to as we get older and making sure that we, we have those in our diet. Yes, so calcium and vitamin D mm-hmm. are major ones. Yeah. And if you're over 50, you should definitely be taking a vitamin D supplement. Yep. It is still controversial how much vitamin D, but I typically tell people yearly, check your blood, get a baseline to see where your vitamin D is at in your bloodstream, and then work from there. So typically people need... Um, about 1,000 to 3,000 IUs of vitamin D. It's very difficult to get this through diet, if not impossible. So we typically say get it through the sun, which is difficult where we live in Canada. From October to March, we don't get a lot of vitamin D. So you have to go to a supplement. So right now, I supplement 
exactly. Mm -hmm. Calcium, vitamin D, and magnesium. Those are the three. Yes, and magnesium helps with the absorption. I'm not such a fan of calcium supplements. I'd rather people bump up their calcium through their diet. Okay. And if you're not a milk drinker or a dairy eater, you can get calcium through many other sources. Almonds, bok choy, nuts and seeds have some calcium, different nuts and seeds, but almonds are one of the higher ones. So there are ways to get calcium. You can have different milk alternatives like soy milk, almond milk, that type of thing to bump up the calcium in your diet. So I actually make the batch oats with milk instead of water. Uh, yeah, that's, blah, blah, boom. There you go. Well, that's one way. And also uh, my first job ever back when I was 14 years old was I worked at a cheese shop. So I have a real fondness for cheese. So between oh, the cheese. I know you love your cheese. I and do. Different cheese. Yeah. Exactly. So between the cheese that we have virtually daily and and the milk and the oatmeal, I think I'm getting it through diet. But I, I think st- you are too. It sounds like your um, breakfast is at least 20 to 30 grams of protein, definitely. Oh, yeah. No, for sure. Like, it is it is so filling and so good that I re- rarely get hungry for lunch until maybe one thirty, two o'clock. Oh, really? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, good for you. That's well done. Yeah. Okay, so what are some of the other factors that we might consider uh, as we age with regards to, like, lifestyle to assist in making sure that, you know, we're getting the proper nutrition yeah, through our good food. Question. Yeah. Good question. So mainly sleep yeah. is a big part of the factor, as well as some people may not think of this, but fall prevention and balance. It ties in with kind of, you know, you could do things like Pilates or yoga to kind of get your your bearings because some, some people lose the sense of flexibility. Yeah, and, and, and balance too, right? Like I've noticed balance. it. Yeah. I think that's going to be kind of the new upcoming thought in terms of aging. Uh, so I've, uh, I've done a little research on this in terms of the sort of the interconnectedness between flexibility and movement and uh, balance. And, you know, one thing that seems to trump all of it and lead and all those things flow from it is actually weight training and resistance training. Mm-hmm. And making sure that you have muscle mass, it protects uh, it protects your bones and your ligaments. Um, and nobody's really bulking up, you know, post fifty. They're they're probably just maintaining their muscle health. Um, but that strength allows you to move, and that movement helps obviously with 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 balance. And it's all sort of interconnected. So if if that's true, if people should be maintaining doing weight training and and, and moving as they get older, other than protein. What do you recommend people should be eating to support that? So it's it's a combination of protein, calcium, iron. It's it's a great combination of different minerals, nutrients, and just making sure you're getting enough calories as well. Some people will limit their calories and that unfortunately will hinder their ability to make lean body mass. Yeah, you know, I appreciate like I, I don't I don't have the same appetites that I used to have. So my way of dealing with it is to cut out the empty calories, like really be mindful about what I'm eating mm-hmm. because because I still I still love eating. But if I'm going to have a treat, it's got to have some nutritional value to it. In addition, you know, and I can play a little, 
you know, I can play the game, right? Like, I like pizza. Well, you know, there's vegetables and cheese on pizza. I yeah. suppose that's, you know, like we all know pizza isn't 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 great as a food, but I I can I can kind of justify it that way. But the totally empty calories of of just sort of sugary desserts and and things like that, that's what I've tried to cut out because I just don't eat as much as I used to. Does that make sense? Yes. Make your calories nutrient rich. Fantastic. Well, thank you so much for coming on the show today. Thanks for having me, Jamie. That was Shauna Lindzen. We have to take a short break, but we'll be right back on The Tonic. The Big Carrot Community Market is celebrating 40 years in business. They've been supporting organic, local, non-GMO, and fair trade since 1983. Celebrate with them on November 18th at the Danforth Community Market. Enjoy gifts with every purchase while supplies last. And complimentary carrot cake and apple cider, too. The Big Carrot. I'd like to give a shout out to our new sponsor, Omega Alpha. This company is 100% Canadian owned. Their team consists of allopathic and naturopathic doctors, nutritionists, researchers, and other scientific professionals, all led by their CEO, Dr. Gordon Chang. Formulations are created on their 40,000 square foot facility located in Toronto. Omega Alpha uses only the highest quality ingredients to manufacture the most efficacious yet price-friendly nutraceuticals. For more information about Omega Alpha, visit OmegaAlphaInc.com. Welcome back to The Tonic, your prescription for a healthier and happier life. Here's your host and publisher of Tonic Magazine, Jamie Busson. Pulmonary arterial hypertension, known as PAH, is a rare disease that causes higher blood pressure in the lungs due to the narrowing of the pulmonary arteries. With increased pressure, the heart is forced to work harder to pump blood through the body, which causes stress and strain. Early disease diagnosis is essential. Joanne Mainwood is a vibrant Ottawa resident and grade 7 teacher at Trillium Elementary School in Orleans. This is uh, Joanne's last year of teaching, her swan song, and she's happy to be well enough to conclude her rewarding career. Joanne joins us today to share her journey living with PAH. Welcome to the show. How are you? Fine. Thank you for inviting me. I really appreciate you bringing awareness of this condition. Yeah, uh, frankly, it's it's one that I don't know a lot about, so it'll be a learning experience for me too. I understood it took years for your condition to be properly diagnosed. H- how did that happen? What was how did the PAH diagnosis occur? Well, uh, originally there were many misdiagnoses, and and I'd been seeing a respirologist about asthma. And I just, on my follow-up appointment, I went to see him, and I was so frustrated. I was in tears as I explained that despite having asthma poppers, everything was still hard. Walking upstairs, I'm out of breath. Going for a walk, is I'm out of breath. Staying up past dinner time was almost impossible. So my respirologist, Dr. Chandy, listened to me and said, we're going to go through a series of tests because this doesn't quite sound like asthma and see if we can get some answers. So it began with some basic testing, but then I had a nuclear test or a a VQ scan that showed that something was wrong with my pulmonary arteries. And I was admitted to the hospital right away because they thought my arteries were full of blood clots. And after a few days of having blood thinners injected, they wanted to double check and did a CT scan to confirm the diagnosis, but 
still it wasn't quite presenting as blood clot. So I was sent for what's called a right heart catheter where a tube's inserted through my neck down into my heart and it takes measurements. And at this point, it was revealed that I had abnormally high pressure in my pulmonary arteries. But it was quite a journey to get to diagnosis. How old were you when you were diagnosed? I was about 45 when I had the final diagnosis, but the symptoms had started when I was 40. Why do you think the disease is so hard to diagnose? Like, like why did it take so long for you to, to get that diagnosis? I think the disease is so hard to diagnose because it mimics so many other conditions. You know, at the time I'd given birth to, to two kids, so I was kind of out of shape, you know, and I was told, well, it might be allergies, might be asthma, and and the symptoms start up very subtly, and and then they become worse and worse. And the earlier you're diagnosed, the better the outcome. But I think so many people are are willing to just kind of push things to the back and say, oh, I'm gonna I'm gonna do more exercise. I'm gonna get in better shape. Um, that must be what's causing this. I love the horse zebra analogy that when we hear hooves, we assume the sound is made by a horse, but the same sound can come from a zebra. So sometimes when you have these symptoms, it's it's not the obvious um, cause. And, and I think that's why it was so hard to get diagnosed. I'm speaking out of ignorance. Is this something that's hereditary or is this, I, I presume you don't catch it. Like how did, do you know how it's developed? Like, is there a family history? some cases it can be hereditary. My particular pulmonary arterial hypertension is idiopathic, meaning there is no cause to, it just happened. But I know that there's some research that is suggesting that different things might trigger the disease and and genetics are coming into it and there's studies going on to see if it is genetically caused. I know that the diet pill Fen-fen was a cause of the disease years ago, and that's why it was taken off the market. But nobody knows exactly why it happens. What's it like to live with it? Well, I'm very lucky because I live a relatively normal life because I have very supportive family and friends around me and a very supportive medical team. Uh, sometimes the fatigue, the fatigue or tiredness is just so overwhelming. And the side effects from the medication can be difficult. It does cause body pain. And my heart and lungs have to work extra hard daily to do many of the basic things that people take for granted. What I want to do and what I'm able to do are often in conflict with each other. So what are some of the challenges and stigmas you've endured? I, 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 I guess a lot of it is people just assuming that you're asthmatic or you're, you know, you're just out of shape and, and somehow you're responsible for this. But maybe I'm wrong. Maybe there's something else that's going on. Well, for some people, they need to be on a supplemental oxygen. Ah. And so they have an oxygen tank with them. And so it's a much more visible right. disease for those people. But For many pulmonary hypertension patients, we're not on oxygen, and it doesn't make any difference whether we're on it or not. Some of the challenges are that the disease is similar in some ways to like a cancer, where the cells are growing abnormally and irregularly causing the blockage, and there is no cure, and the disease is progressive. Mm. So medication that worked for me earlier on in the disease stopped working. 
And so it's kind of this cat and mouse game of staying ahead of the disease and trying different medications and and working to to maintain my quality of life. And one of the challenges would be, for example, I want to retire at the end of this year, but one of the medications I'm on, it's not covered mm. by our province. And, you know, it's about four or $5,000 a month. Wow. And so I believe that the, the drug company is going to let me continue on the drug for compassionate reasons. So I'm hoping that that is going to happen. Oh, I hope so, too. So I understand you have a disability card for your car, but you, you don't want to use it. Why is that? Well, ironically, exercise is really an important part of my routine to stay healthy. I have two big dogs that I walk every single day. Um, the damage done to my pulmonary arteries becomes more prevalent, or I notice it more under certain conditions. For example, in extreme cold or extreme humidity, or with the fires that we've had, poor air quality, it can really impact my breathing and the quality of air getting into my lungs isn't great. For example, one time in extreme cold, I was at Costco, and this is before I had my parking sticker, and I parked my car a fair distance from the door. And I was pushing my cart over lumps of ice, and I think it was like minus 30-something with the wind chill. And all of a sudden, I could not get any air in. And I had to literally go to the ground, and I was blocking traffic uh, because I I just couldn't push my cart. I couldn't move. So I know that in certain conditions, I'll use the the pass to help me out. And also, if I completely overdo it and I'm too active and I do too much for two, three days, then then I might be absolutely wiped out to the point that I can barely walk and my body goes into recovery mode and, and, and walking into a store, a great distance to a store would be an issue. But as much as I can, I avoid using the parking pass. I'm stable most of the time. And so I want to make sure somebody else has access to the parking spot. Well, that's noble. What's been the biggest part of the support system to help you overcome PAH? Well, I don't, I don't know that I've overcome it because it's, it's, a day, it's day-to-day challenges. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but I'm very lucky in that I have a really great support system with my family. My husband often picks up the slack if I'm having a really bad day. My medical team at the Ottawa Heart Institute is exceptional. If I have anything that's a bit off, I phone and they're right on top of it. I'm also part of a support group. So it's really helpful to have people that understand where you're coming from. And because it's such an invisible disability, but it can also be so debilitating to have other people that understand what I'm going through is, is of great benefit. We have time for one more question, and that is, what would you like our listeners to know about PAH? Well, the earlier you are diagnosed, the better your prognosis. Awareness is important. I had no idea what pulmonary hypertension was when I was diagnosed 14 years ago. Even this disease, even with this disease, you can still have a good quality of life, but you need to advocate for yourself and re- surround yourself with uh, amazing people. And be a bit wary about reading information online 
you are better off connecting with other patients who are living life with this disease. And there are a lot of support groups. Fantastic. Thank you so much for coming on the show today. Thank you so much for raising awareness of this condition. Thanks to all my wonderful guests, Andy Donald, Dr. Mahela Yordanova, Shauna Lindzen, and Joanne Mainwood. And thank you all for listening to The Tonic. You can listen or download this episode as a podcast with full show notes, contact information for our guests, and links at thetonic.ca. To find out more about the show, you can always follow us at It's The Tonic on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter. For great articles by amazing health and wellness writers, be sure to pick up your copy of The Tonic magazine. The fall issue is now available free on racks at over 100 locations across the GTA and delivered with the Globe and Mail to home subscribers in Toronto, west of Victoria Park. Or you can visit our website, thetonic.ca. If you're interested in providing feedback or suggesting topics for the show, you can always email me at jamie at thetonic.ca. On our next show, we'll discuss the health and wellness issues that are important to you. Until then, this is Jamie Busson wishing you a healthy and happy week. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.